It is my privilege to uh, introduce our speaker for today. Uh, if you guys have been around Every Nation for a while, there's a good chance that you've heard Dr. Brian Miller speak before at our church, because he comes every year, and uh, we keep asking him to say the exact same thing. Like, don't change it, because we still don't quite get it, so don't change it at all. <laughs> so if you haven't, if you haven't heard it, uh, good luck. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, and if you have heard it, you can be like me and like try to, I don't know, it's like the 20th time or something, Dr. Brian, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, but that's okay. What I would encourage you to do is in Dr. Brian's talk is, yes, he's smart, has cool degrees, and we'll talk about things that we don't usually talk up here for obvious reasons, but uh, I would encourage you to listen to his story. I find his story the most intriguing part, and uh, I find it fascinating, and it really speaks to me, and I hope it speaks to you as well. So what we're going to do is he's going he's gonna, to uh, speak for a few minutes, and then uh, when he concludes, I'll come up. And we're going to put a, uh, a text message uh, thing on the screen uh, with a number. And so you can kind of be texting uh, your questions uh, throughout the time. And then uh, we're going to collect those up. And then we'll have a time for question and answer via text. And I'll come up and kind of field that. So without further ado, can you welcome Dr. Brian Miller as he comes up? Take it away, sir. Thank you. It's, it's such a pleasure. I always enjoy speaking to, you, uh, to the folks in Vancouver. I kind of feel like I'm an honorary Canadian. I just feel like I'm at home when I cross the border and kind of a foreigner when I go back to the United States. So it's nice to be back home, or however that works. But uh, now I've spoken before, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what I've talked about before with a few extra slides. And there's always this temptation to, uh, because I have a PhD in physics, to put in lots of technical jargon and lots of complex physics and biology. And it, it's, it's, it's sort of the voice of wisdom says, let's make it simple, let's tone it down. But how, how shall I put this? The, um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So um, unfortunately, yes, you will be getting a lot of technical stuff. I apologize in advance for those of you that hate science. In fact, you're welcome to leave now if you so desire. But um, for those of you that might like science, what we're going to talk about today is really the, um, the evidence for God and science. And the reason this is really important is because there's a common um, narrative that you hear that faith and science are in conflict. In fact, that's a narrative I once believed because I went to an MIT undergraduate, and I went as a Christian, but I was raised in church, but I was never prepared to deal with the challenges that I would face going to college. And MIT is a very secular college. There isn't a lot of faith behind the uh, lesson plans. Uh, but it's not necessarily hostile, but it doesn't matter because the challenge is whenever you go into the culture, there's a sort of narrative that you hear in the culture. And the narrative is that we're sort of here by chance, that our life is simply an accident. So we kind of have to just make money, have fun, and then we die. Who's familiar with that narrative? Sort of a common story. Anyone here, by the way, there's a cartoon I stumbled across. Anyone ever see a Rick and Morty show? Okay, I figured as much. That's a sort of a classic embodiment of our secular narrative. And what happened is I went to college, and I uh, took a class on the Bible. It was taught from the perspective of a skeptic. And I became pretty convinced that Christianity was just a psychological crutch, that people believed in faith because they didn't think that deeply. They didn't really ask the right questions. They just kind of were like sheep. They went along with the herd. And then I um, read a book by a, a man named Richard Dawkins. And if you're not familiar with Richard Dawkins, he wrote the book, The, um, the God Delusion. And um, he's kind of one of the patron saints of atheism. 
And his agenda is to eradicate religion from the planet. A very pleasant fellow. He probably won't be a guest speaker anytime soon. And here, this is the book called The God Delusion. He wrote an earlier book called uh, The Blind Watchmaker. And in this book, he argued that when you look at nature, you may think you see design, like in the incredible intricacy of the eye, but it's all an illusion. Everything can be explained through the blind forces of nature, that there is no evidence for God. In fact, he describes science as a universal acid, that whatever science touches, it will dissolve away any semblance of belief, any religious sentiment, and if people would just learn more science, they would become good atheists like himself. And that's kind of the narrative that, that I believe for a while. And I remember I said, God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do exist, you have to prove it to me because I'm a scientist. I just can't believe this blindly. So I, that may not be fair. That might, not, might be against the rules, but that's just the way it has to be. So that put me on a long journey where I studied science and philosophy and comparative religions and history and archaeology and several other disciplines. And what happened through my studies is I came back to faith. Because as, as you may have heard before, probably from me actually, um, a little science will take you away from God, but a lot of science will bring you back. And that's key. Because the science points very clearly to the fact that we're designed. Hence the title, The Heavens Declare. Now, I found the same thing with the truth about Christianity. Because if you look at the resurrection of Jesus, it's one of the most well-verified facts in all of history. That of an event of that scope, it has more evidence than most of what we take for granted. Now, that won't be what we talk about today. That's kind of like a trailer for part two, if I ever come back. And we'll see what happens after this talk. Uh, if, if not me, then maybe Greg will do it one day. But we'll f focus primarily today on the science. Because the whole idea that faith and science are in conflict is a myth. And it's good that it's a myth, because if you believe Richard Dawkins and you believe that we're simply here as a product of the blind forces of nature, there is no purpose to life. There is no hope. There is no meaning. Again, it's like a Rick and Morty episode. What happens is that if we're just going to die and all our memories will be lost, it doesn't matter if we're kind or if we're cruel, if we're happy, if we're sad, it makes no difference because we'll be dead. Eventually, the sun will explode, and then our planet will be vaporized. And even if we could colonize other planets, which is extremely unlikely, eventually our universe will run out of free energy, and we'll just be a bunch of particles floating through space. Life is pointless. But the good news is that's not the case. The good news is that the more you look at science, the more you see the face of God. In fact, the whole idea that science and faith were ever in conflict is a myth. Because again, if you look at the early scientists, what you find, um, let me just go to the next slide, is that if you look at Albert Einstein, he made an amazing quote. He said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. And that's really profound. Because if one believes that our brains evolved over just millions of years through random mutations, why would our brain evolve to understand quantum mechanics? or general relativity, or, or at least my brain to understand it. Why should we understand how the atom works? That makes no sense. That doesn't help us to survive. It doesn't help us to reproduce. No, the reason we can do science is because the early scientists were Christians. And they believed that there was order in the world because there was a God who created the world in an orderly fashion. 
In the same way God gave moral laws of how we should live, he gave physical laws that determine how planets move around each other. In fact, in addition to that, we believe we're created in God's image. Therefore, we have the ability to understand the, the order that God created. So faith and, science aren't in, faith and science aren't in conflict, but science depends on faith. So that was a, a first revelation that I had. But it gets even better, because the more you look at the laws of physics, the more you see the evidence of a designer. In fact, one of the first places that that became very clear is in the study of what's called the Big Bang. Now, who's heard of the Big Bang Theory? I'm not talking about the TV show with Penny and Sheldon. I'm talking about the, just to be, just to be clear, the idea is that our universe, because of general relativity, had to begin. Time, space, matter, and energy, everything began. So the question is, if everything began at a point, how did it start? If, if everything just started, that means that there had to be a creator outside of time and space who was infinitely powerful that created everything in a burst of light. Does that sound familiar? Does that ring a bell? Like kind of like Genesis 1? In the beginning, God said there would be light. God created the heavens and the earth. So cosmology, the study of our universe, points back to Genesis. Well, that's, that was amazing, but it gets even better. Because the more scientists have studied the laws of physics, the more they realize that the universe was designed for life. Because if you have just any random set of laws of physics, what you'd probably have is just a bunch of particles floating through space just ricocheting off each other. That's it, nothing interesting. But the fact that we've got chemistry, that we have planets, we have stars, is only possible because the laws of physics were carefully designed for that purpose. Now, as an illustration, uh, an analogy, which is really, really kind of nice, is have you ever seen like a mixer board? It's like a soundboard that you have to get all the dials right for your music to sound right. Like what would happen if your bass was way off or whatever those other things are called? I don't know anything about music. But if something was really off, the sound would be terrible. You have to get all the dials right for you to have a concert that sounds right. In the same way, if those dials represented the, 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 the strength of gravity, so if you turn one dial up, you become heavier. If you turn it down, you become lighter and float off the planet. Another dial is like the mass of the proton, or the charge of the proton, or the strength of the force that holds the proton and the electron together. Another dial would be what's called the strong nuclear force, which holds your protons and neutrons together. Another dial would be the original order of the universe. What happens is dozens of these dials have to be perfectly set for our universe to support life. So for instance, what would happen if the mass of the proton were only a few percent heavier or a few percent lighter. We wouldn't have atoms. We'd only have all hydrogen, or we wouldn't have any carbon or oxygen, and therefore no life. What's really amazing, there's a great story. There's a man named uh, Frederick Hubble. No, Hub I'm sorry, it was uh, Hoyle, Fred Hoyle. And Fred Hoyle was an atheist. And what happened was his atheism was crushed as he started to study physics, because he studied how atoms are made in the stars. And he realized that according to all the models of physics, there shouldn't be anything except for 
uh, oxygen, I'm sorry, instead of hydrogen, helium, and beryllium. That's it. Just a few of the elements. So there shouldn't be any carbon, certainly not enough to support life. What happened, though, is he found that there was an energy level of carbon that perfectly matched what it needed to be for it to be produced inside of stars. So you have a helium and a beryllium that comes together to form a carbon. That's way too much. I just couldn't resist. I apologize for those of you that don't like science. So he found that the reason there's carbon in the universe is because another dial was perfectly set. He also found there had to be dials fine-tuning for things like the energy of beryllium, the energy of oxygen, and even some details of neon. So he said there's so many details of our universe that are so perfectly set that as an atheist, he said, it looks like a super intellect monkeyed with the laws of physics to allow for life. So his atheism was challenged by the laws of physics. Pretty extraordinary. In fact, one of the most interesting parameters is gravity. Because if gravity were a knob, the precision necessary to get gravity right would be kind of like if you're a marksman and you're trying to shoot a target. Anyone go target shooting before? You kind of go out? Now, if you met a person that could, that could, let's say, hit a target that was one centimeter by one centimeter, two kilometers away, is that a good marksman? That's an awesome marksman. That's like a Jason Bourne type marksman. But what if you had a target that was at the other end of our galaxy. And that target was the width of an atom. To hit that target is the precision necessary to set gravity in such a way that allows for life. If gravity were just a little bit more, the universe would be filled with black holes, no life. If it was a little bit less, there wouldn't be planets or stars. So the fine-tuning is absolutely extraordinary. In fact, it's not just with, uh, it's not just with the laws of physics. Because if you look at our planet Earth, what you find is there are hundreds of details about Earth that have to be set for life. The distance from the sun, the tilt, the rotation rate, the, the moon that goes around the Earth that stabilizes our orbit. We need a sun that, that's, that gives us the right type of radiation. The atmosphere has to let the right radiation in and other radiation has to be kept out. We have to have a, a, a rotating core in our, in our planet to create a magnetic field that protects us from radiation. The, the list goes on and on and on. And what's amazing is it's not just that everything was designed for us to live, but it's also designed for scientific investigation and cultural and technological advancement. Because the same details that allow us to live allows us to do science. Like, we, we can breathe air because it's the right percentage of oxygen. But it's also the right percentage of oxygen for fire. In fact, fire is important because fire is what allows for technology. So what would happen if we had too little oxygen? You couldn't produce fire, so you couldn't advance beyond the Stone Age. But what if we had too much oxygen? Well, this might be hard for you to relate, but imagine all your forests burning. That's what would happen if we had too much oxygen, would be all the forests on Earth would just burn to a crisp and there'd be nothing left. Occasionally that happens even though it's just right. So again, oxygen is perfect for us to have fire for technology. Now, another really interesting one too that I really appreciate is the issue of the wavelength of light. Because the, the light produced by the sun is the perfect energy for things like photosynthesis to keep us warm. If the radiation were more intense, if it was a higher frequency, like 
ultraviolet or x-rays, it would cook us to a crisp. If it was a lower intensity, we couldn't have photosynthesis, so we wouldn't be able to live. So the, the radiation from the sun is perfect for life, but the wavelength is also perfect for seeing because the wavelength of light is what determines the focal length of your lens. If the wavelength were longer, we'd have to have eyes that were a mile long, which would be most, or a kilometer long, which would be most inconvenient. If the wavelength were shorter, that we'd have focal lengths which were too short, or it would scatter off of all the things in our eye and we couldn't be able to see. So here you see this amazing convergence of fine-tuning for life and for scientific investigation. Now, that's very powerful because what it tells you is that everything in nature was designed not just for life, but for human life, because we're the only ones that have telescopes. At least I haven't seen chimpanzees with telescopes at the zoo. So that's pretty extraordinary. Now, the one area of science that many people believe is at odds with, um, with faith is that of biology. Because again, the question becomes, let's go to the next one, one more. So the question becomes, when you look at biology, do you see evidence of design or simply evidence of the blind forces of nature? Because many people might argue that evolution removes the need to believe in God. In fact, Richard Dawkins said that evolution allows people to be intellectually fulfilled atheists. Now the reality though, is before you can even talk about evolution, you have to ask the question, where did life come from? How did that first cell get here? Could that have been produced by the blind laws of nature? Or does it point to a creator? Well, and again, this is sort of my area of specialty because I was in complex systems physics that we deal with like sort of complex systems. And what I can say is that it is a physical impossibility for nature to produce a cell. Now, why is that? Let's talk about that. Well, first of all, um, the question becomes, what is the likelihood of a bunch of random chemicals coming together to form a cell. There is a, again, uh, I mentioned Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle actually did a calculation, and he said that the chances, the probability, of chemicals on the early Earth forming a cell is like one in 10 to the power of 40,000. Now, now that's, a, that's a pretty small number, and, and, and um, if you don't, aren't comfortable with exponents, let me use an analogy that he used. It's kind of like a tornado goes through a junkyard, throws all the debris in the air, and a 747 airplane falls to the ground filled with gas ready to fly. That's the likelihood of the random forces of nature producing a cell. Now, most origin of life people know this. If you asked your average origin of life person and said, is it possible for a cell to form by chance? They would say, no. It's probabilistically impossible. But they would say, Maybe that's the case, but maybe there's laws of physics that help it along the way. Like if you try to roll a die and you try to roll a thousand sixes in a row, is that possible? No, not, not in the time of our universe. But what if the die were loaded? What if you got a six every time? Then if you rolled the die, it'd be very easy to roll a thousand sixes in a row. So the question is, are the die loaded? Is there mysterious forces of nature that produce life? And unfortunately, there's not. And here's why. Because if we look at what does nature want to do, there's two driving tendencies in nature. One is nature wants to go from states of high energy to low energy. Does water run uphill or does water run downhill? 
obviously water runs downhill, state of lower energy. Makes sense. Also, nature wants to go from states of order to states of disorder. Is it easier to keep your room messy or to keep it neat? Do you keep trying to keep your room messy, but you come back and everything is neat and tidy? Most likely not unless you live with your parents. <laughs> now the problem is, if you look at the origin of life, what you find is that the first cell is very high energy compared to the chemicals around it. In fact, if you were to scale a, si a cell to the size of your bathtub, the amount of energy that would have to be absorbed to create a cell would be like your bathtub spontaneously heating up to boiling. Now that's probably never happened, right? No, that's a real, that's a real toughie, but that's the sort of energy content of a cell. Plus, an, a cell is enormously ordered or it has very low entropy. So in other words, in order to get a cell, nature has to do the opposite of what it ever does in the universe. Now, what happened is there was actually a physicist named Dr. Harold Norowitz, and what he did was he calculated the odds of a cell forming by chance if you include the tendencies of nature. And what happens is the probability drops down to less than 1 in 10 to 100 million. Now, that's a, so, a number so small I can't even describe it. The point is there's no way for a cell to form by chance or through the laws of physics. Now, a lot of physicists have realized this. And what they've done is they said, okay, fine. So if you imagine in the early Earth you've got some pool of chemicals and lightning strikes, there's no way it's going to form a cell. Okay, we get it. But what if you have a system that's far from equilibrium? Okay, I'm getting into some deep physics here, so if you don't like science, you can sort of think about dinner or you know, your next, your next TV show, and I'll, I'll bring you back when we're done. Sorry about that. I just couldn't resist. The flesh is weak. But what happens is what a lot of people say is, okay, maybe normally you won't get life, but imagine you have, like, a lot of energy being driven into the system. Like, you have the sun just pouring energy down to this, this little pond, or you have a thermal vent on the ocean just pouring heat into the system. It's called, in case you're curious, for the two of you out there, a non-equilibrium dissipative system. It's a system driven far from equilibrium. Okay, is that going to help? And the, unfortunately, it will not. Because the question becomes, what do these systems look like? Well, a system driven with a lot of energy is like a hurricane. Now, I'm from Florida, so we've had some experience with hurricanes. And a hurricane is a system where you have lots of matter and energy being shoved into the system, and it creates an ordered pattern, a funnel cloud. And people argue maybe that's the sort of process that produce life. Um, but the question is, does that make any sense whatever, whatsoever? And I could go into really complex stuff like dissipation theorems and entropy, but I won't. I won't. <laughs> but I'll use a simple analogy. Now, when you're in a hurricane, you have to ask a question. Do you see things like this, where you have, let's say, a pile of wood? Perhaps you have a pile of wood on one side of your yard, a pile of cement, and after the hurricane comes through, do you ever end up with something like a house? Does that ever happen? Can you get order out of a non-equilibrium system? And obviously not, because these systems are like hurricanes. They're stirring everything up. In fact, if you look at what happens in a hurricane, you end up with this. One back, you end up with 
basically destruction and mayhem. And that's the challenge. Is in the early earth, what happens is the forces of nature are trying to tear a cell apart. They're not trying to build it up. So the idea of the laws of nature producing a cell on the early earth are kind of like expecting a hurricane to go through um, a wood field and producing a log cabin. It's just as improbable. So again, it's not realistic. However, when you look at the first cell, what you see is unmistakable evidence of design. And what is that design? Let's talk about that. Well, again, if you look at the cell, it's incredibly ordered. It's, it's like an automated factory. It's almost like an automated city with lots of molecular machines taking place. And what happens with this is you have an incredibly complex metabolism making all this take place. Now, what you find is all this is possible because you have building blocks of your cell which are proteins. You probably never thought you'd get a physics and biology lesson in church. Sorry, I hope you come back. It's not like this every week. What happens is these proteins are the building blocks of life. And these proteins are built of what are called amino acids. And there's 20 separate amino acids. There's actually more like 21, but that's a more complex story. And they're like the letters of the alphabet. Now, if you want to have a sentence that makes sense, you have to have letters in the right sequence to create a meaningful message. In the same way, to get a functional protein, the amino acids have to be in the right order to get something that actually works in the cell. So in other words, you have information in these proteins that allow it to function properly. Now, what happens though, is if you think about it, that's not enough. Because if the earliest cell just had proteins, the proteins would break apart and the cell would break. And proteins don't reproduce themselves. So the information to produce your cell also has to be coded in DNA. DNA is the encoded information of your proteins to allow your cell to work. It's like the operating system of your cell. And it contains, again, information. Now, this is something that Bill Gates realized. And he said that human DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any we've ever created. That's what's striking. Now, the question is, why is that relevant? Well, the question becomes, where do you get information? Now, let me use an analogy to, get, to make my point. Have you ever had alphabet soup? You kind of have like those letters in your soup, and you stir it up. And what do you hope to see in that soup? Maybe a word, right? And if you see your name, that's super exciting, right? You know, God's speaking to you. <laughs> now, of course, if your name is Bob, that's a lot more likely if your name is Jehoshaphat. But, but what if you have your alphabet soup, and you go to the restroom, and you come back, and you see, let's say, a message. Get a lot of rest, drink a lot of fluids, I hope you feel better. Now, you wouldn't think to yourself, what an amazing coincidence. You wouldn't think, wow, I bet I can explain this with the chemistry of the pasta. If I just took organic chemistry, I could explain the message in the soup. You wouldn't say, if I just knew more about the boiling water, I bet that would explain the message. Now, you would know an ordered sequence of letters that conveys a message was produced by an intelligent agent. Again, probably by your mother after she cleaned up your room. Now, in the same way, if you look at the information in a cell in DNA, it points to a designer just as clearly because information is only a product of the mind. So it points to design. Now, 
The last issue, though, is what about evolution? Because someone might say that, sure, maybe it's possible that life was designed. But maybe an alien, like we've all seen Prometheus, right? Like maybe some alien seeded the world with, with cells and they just evolved over time. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't make sense either. And this is really key to understand evolution at a deeper level because evolution is true at one level. Like the, what Darwin realized is if you have a lot of sheep, what happens is that over time, if it gets colder, which sheep will survive the winter? The ones with lots of wool or ones with a little bit of wool? Lots of wool. So the sheep with a little bit of wool, they don't make it. They become lamb chops. And the sheep with lots of wool, they survive. So what happens to the population of sheep over time? They have more wool, right? That's natural selection. That's evolution. We know it's true. Bacterial resistance is true. If you take too many antibiotics, eventually bacteria become resistant to the antibiotics. That's evolution. It's true. However, Darwin had the idea that these very small changes could um, increase over time and produce the tree of life. It's simple cells become more complex. You eventually get animals and plants and fungi, and they branch off to the different groups, and eventually you have the tree of life. So all of life is, is connected through a tree and gradually evolved over millions of years. So the same process that makes wool your sheep makes a cell become into a human or a fish into an amphibian. That's the basic idea. And what's really important is what Darwin said. It says, it was Darwin's greatest accomplishment to show that the directive organization of living beings can be explained as the result of natural process, natural selection, without any need to resort to a creator or other external agent. This was the head of the American Association of, of Advancement of Science. So what was key about Darwin is before his time, everyone knew life look design. Everyone knew every species look adapted for its environment. So it looked like an engineer designed a bird to fly. A bird has wings with feathers, it's aerodynamic, it has hollow bones, it has special mechanisms in its brain to detect magnetic waves. There's thousands of adaptations. And everyone said, hey, that looks designed. But then with Darwin, the idea was that the design was an illusion, that natural selection can mimic design. So all that evidence for design could be ignored. No matter how much awe and wonder you see in the world, it can be ignored, which is very striking. Now, what happens, though, is atheists have really jumped on this. Like Richard Dawkins said, biology is a study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So you see design, but you can suppress it. Now, what's interesting, though, is I was, I was um, last November, I was at the Royal Society of, uh, of England, it's one of the most, the Royal Society for Science, it's one of the most prestigious scientific organizations in the world. And they had a conference on new perspectives of evolutionary biology. And the first speaker was a man named Gert Mueller. He's a, he's a very well-respected evolutionary theorist. And he said that natural selection, Darwinian evolution explains things like finch beaks really well, but it can't explain major adaptations. In other words, the basic assumptions of evolution in terms of large-scale changes are false. And more and more top-level biologists are realizing that neo-Darwinism is essentially dead when it comes to major innovations in life. 
Now that hasn't trickled down to your average biology teacher, but the upper echelon academics have realized that to be the case. Why is that? Well, let me show you um, just a simple diagram to explain it. What happens, if you think about microevolution, the small scale changes you see in life, that's like being at the top of a hill. The top of the hill is where you have genetic variety, that's where you have adaptation. But macroevolution, like going to, from an amphibian to a reptile, you have to go from the top of one hill to the top of another hill. Now, what do you see in between these two hills? A valley. So what has to happen, you have to get much, much worse before you get much, much better. So natural selection drives small-scale evolution, but it prevents large-scale evolution. Because what happens is you have to have um, essentially, oops, let me go back a second. Okay, I see what's going on. Okay, so what, you have to, what has to happen is in order to go from one body plan to another, you have to make multiple changes at once to go from the different body designs. And I can talk about more of that in the question answer. Now the question becomes, okay, fine, so it seems impossible, but what do we actually see in the fossil record? Well, again, what we see in the fossil record, again, is not the appearance of gradual change, but the appearance of sudden infusions of large amounts of information. Because if you look at the fossil record, what you don't see is Darwin's tree of life. What you see is cells that go all the way back, and you have other creatures out here too, but at one point in the fossil record, you have what's called the Cambrian explosion, where the first representatives of the major body plans appear suddenly, and what you don't see, oops, go back one, what you don't see are a series of intermediates going back to the trunk of a tree. There is no tree. The evolutionary tree of life is a myth. Those common ancestors are, are mythical beasts like leprechauns and unicorns. Very, very different. What you see is what looks like creation events. Radical new body plans appear suddenly, and when anything appears in the fossil record, it doesn't change over time. Very different picture. Now the question though, is if there is evidence of design, like what I say, why are so many scientists resistant to the appearance of design? Is it that they're being objective? Is it that just the way science works? Well, a good revelation was by a man named Richard Levantin. He said, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, so we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. In other words, what he's saying is forget the evidence, forget what you see, forget common sense. We assume that everything is explained by material causes. We assume there's no design, and that's what we believe in faith, and that's what we'll teach. And if you think you see design, we'll suppress it, and we'll give you all sorts of crazy explanations that make no sense, but you have to believe it anyway, to paraphrase. Now, uh, someone said something very similar a bit earlier, and that was the Apostle Paul. So if you look at um, Romans 1, what Paul said was that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay, that's a little harsh. That's not what we're going to focus on. 
It probably won't be in a Joel Osteen episode anytime soon, but that's the picture. But what he says is, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. <clears throat> it's a picture that you can have this happen individually, where people can see design and suppress it themselves, but what you see is a culture-wide suppression of design. In fact, what happens, it was interesting at this conference I went to, as soon as people talked about agency or the appearance of design, scientists would completely freak out. They'd start to hyperventilate because any mention of the appearance of design starts to challenge that level of suppression that they have to maintain, and a lot of anger comes out. So what you see is that there is not an absence of evidence, but there's a clear picture of design in nature, but people suppress that truth. Why is that relevant? Why am I talking about physics and biology on a Sunday, besides that it's really cool and fun? Well, it's significant for faith, because what we see is evidence that there is a God outside of time and space who's all-powerful. He created the universe out of nothing, an incredibly all-powerful God. But it's not a God that's distant, because God's been so involved in the world that he designed your DNA from scratch, human DNA from scratch. It's a God who's transcendent, all-powerful, but involved in creation, creating life. In fact, what Jesus said is consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. What you see, if God has designed the lilies with more beauty than Solomon, then you can be convinced the same God that created the universe is involved in your life. It's the same God who's in control of the world. It's the same God that has a purpose for you. And once you embrace that truth about God, it'll transform your life. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brian. Just going to pull this over. Um, okay, so we are going to flash that number on the screen. And if you have a question, you can text it. Uh, text it there, and then I'll get it on my phone. And I'll read a few of them out. So uh, you can take a second. If you have something you wanted to ask, it's helpful if it's not, if it's super short, which is great. If you can say it as short as possible, that's nice. But if you've got to type an essay, go for it. Um, and to give you a moment, uh, I have a few uh, questions of my own, <laughs> if that's okay. Uh, the first one is, um, I find just that, that thing you ended with, um, that divine foot in the door, that quote about almost like a militant aversion to design in academia. Uh, I find that frustrating <laughs> because um, uh, how long do things take to make it from this super special conference you went to? Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, can you talk more about question. that? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, wow. Like, how long will it take before these ideas become mainstream? Yeah. Uh, usually it takes a decade or two. Wow. So it takes time. I mean, what you read in your textbooks in high school can be like 30 years out of date. So it, it, it takes time. Sometimes it's faster than others. Um, usually you look at the Big Bang Theory, then you see what the latest... Like, anyone notice that Sheldon stopped studying string theory? <laughs> Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> it was a really cool analogy, but it just fell flat. Uh, the point is, the point is, uh, literally, though, you'll often see the latest science more on cartoons and TV shows than you'll see in your textbooks. And the problem is, evolution is particularly problematic because it's not just a scientific theory. 
it's the creation mythology of our culture. So it has, it, it defines people's reality. So it's going to take a long time before people say, oh, well, neo-Darwinism isn't true. Because there is nothing else they have on the table that can mimic design. They have other possibilities. They talk about things like phenotypic plasticity. They talk about developmental constraints, niche construction, uh, natural genetic engineering. They have lots of other sub-theories. But it's a lot like what happened when the geocentric view of the world started to collapse. What happened was when people saw evidence that contradicted the idea that the Earth was the center of the universe, they didn't abandon it. They came up with sort of patchwork theories like epicycles to try to keep it in place. That's what you see happening with evolution. So it's going to take a long time before people actually admit publicly that it's actually not going to work. But what happens is the more that science advances, the more the evidence for design becomes clear. That's great. Thank you. Uh, question here. Uh, can you explain what the missing link is? Great question. What happens is people talk about what are called transitional fossils. So the idea is that you have um, species which may fit in one group, but they share characteristics of a different group. Like you have Archaeopteryx, which is a bird which has features of, a, um, of uh, reptiles. You have things like the Australopithecines, which are ape-like creatures with certain human-like features. You have things like Homo halibus. So what you see in nature are lots of similarities in different species. And what evolutionists try to do is they try to connect the dots to show A evolves into B, which evolves into C, which evolves into D. So um, what a, uh, a B or a C would be like would be called a transitional fossil. But it's a little bit misleading because what they don't have are a series of ancestor descendants, you know, uh, like great grand fossil, grand fossil, father fossil, fossil, grandson fossil. You don't have a series of transitions which represent a genuine ancestor-descendant relationship. What you have are species that share characteristics of different groups. Like a toaster oven has features of a toaster and an oven. But that's not because a toaster evolved in the oven and halfway in between you have a toaster oven. A toaster oven is independently designed to have features of a toaster and an oven. In the same way, anyone ever see the whale series? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll just skip it. <clears throat> um, so the idea of a missing link is that you have like A, like an ape-like creature. You have us, and a missing link would be like halfway between an ape and us. That's like a missing link. They don't exist. What you have are tons of toaster ovens, lots of scattering of similarities, but the similarities don't fit in a clear pattern that fits evolution. It's like if you go to Walmart, if you go to like Amazon, you'll see lots of fe features that have commonalities, right? Like the ignition switch of a car is similar to the ignition switch of a motorcycle, right? Now, is that because they evolved from a little Tonka truck? No, it's because designers often reuse designs over and over again. So the picture looks like a designer that creates many variations on themes, but it doesn't look like an evolutionary process. I've got some way cool slides, which I could show you afterwards to make that even clearer if you want. Way cool. Uh, okay, I've got uh, one here that says, 
how is the dialogue, this is a little heady, but how is the dialogue that is happening between Dr. Francis Collins and BioLogos interact with what you've presented? Is there a dialogue within the body of Christ amongst Christians and scientists? Um, the problem is, the problem is, a, what you have is a lot of Christians who want to baptize evolution in Christianity. So it's an idea that Christians should see the world through a materialistic lens. In other words, it's not a dialogue, it's more of a self-imposed captivity. So like it's the idea that Christians are criticized because they challenge evolution. Therefore, we as, we as Christians should just accept evolution in all materialistic assumptions of science, and that way we'll be accepted by the scientific elites. Mm. So what happens often is Christians who have made that decision, they, you ever see the movie The Matrix? So what happens in the matrix is people are trapped in a false worldview, and what happens is Neo and Morpheus want to go into that worldview to free people's minds. But when people are trapped by the matrix, they become agents of the system. So many maybe many Christians have fallen into a materialistic worldview, so they oppose any presentation of the evidence for design because they assume as a matter of faith that the design is not real, that it has to be explained by materialistic causes. So I know some of the people from BioLogos, and I'm friends with them. They're nice people. They're great Christians. They love God. They want to do good science. They want to help the kingdom of God. They're good people. I would argue, though, that they're trapped in a false worldview, so they are no longer capable of seeing the evidence for design. So you'll see the same criticisms of design on their website as you would see on any atheist website. That's not because they're bad people. It's because they're trapped in a false system. Got it. Uh, can science explain the concept of heaven? Oh, great question. Science can only explain what's in our physical realm. Heaven is outside of our physical realm, so it's not accessible by the tools of science. So if you imagine um, a piece of paper is like our, our three-dimensional world, you can imagine like this two-dimensional piece of paper. Now, there is a separate dimension, right? But can a creature living on this piece of paper sense the higher dimension? They can't. So heaven is like the higher dimension that's inaccessible by our science, which is trapped within our two-dimensional or three-dimensional world. Great, so this kind of follows, if God created everything, then who or what created God? That's a classic question, what created God? Uh, it's a fair question, but what people have to realize is something must fundamentally exist. That something is either the set of laws of physics that are just eternal and all-powerful, or an omnipotent creator. In fact, to explain the fine-tuning, scientists have argued for a multiverse, it's like an infinite number of universes which try all possible laws of physics, and we just get in the right one. So they have to appeal to an infinity also. It's just an infinite number of universes. While we appeal to an infinitely powerful God. Either could be true, but I would argue that there's more evidence for a God than a multiverse. There's actually no evidence for a multiverse, so that's not hard. But with the Christian faith, You've got evidence of a creator in the laws of physics, 
the origin of life, and then Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, proving that he was God's representative. So the weight of the evidence is for a creator and not for an infinite multiverse. Thank you. Uh, can you give us a number on how, how old the Earth is, Dr. Brian? Get a definitive one. Oh, I, I would say the Earth <laughs> is about, um, about, uh, about 4.5 billion years or so, plus or minus. The universe is like 13.7 billion years. I obviously believe in an old Earth. So that gets in the question, what about Genesis? Because some argue that you have to interpret Genesis as a literal six days, other argue it could be longer periods of time or something like that. I would argue that the literary context doesn't force a literal six-day creation. So I think the universe is old. So leading similar question, is carbon dating still a relevant method uh, to validate age? And how has this been used to prove the Bible as historic text? Right. So carbon dating is only for more recent ages. It's good, it's good to like, I think, 50,000 years. So if you want to get the age of the earth, you have to use heavy metal dating, like lead, uranium, transition, rubidium, strontium, potassium, argon. And it's, it's, it's I'm almost certainly valid, because you have seafloor spreading, where you have lava that hardens, and the seafloor spreads like a centimeter every year. And you can date the seafloor, and the time it takes, based on the velocity, for the seafloor to spread, let's say, the equivalent of a million years, is what it dates. So the dating of the rocks corresponds to the spreading of the seafloor, and that's not really possible unless the dating methods are accurate. So those datings work well. And in terms of the, the Bible, it's not so relevant. That's more historical arguments than dating arguments, really. Cool. Um, I'm going to give you two more. What is a good way to engage with slash reach out to people who only believe in something when there's hard evidence? Oh, great. Um, I assure you people believe in a lot of things without hard evidence. Like, how do you prove that science is accurate? You just have to take it on faith, right? How do you know your brain is reliable? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of things we take on faith. So what you can say, if you want hard evidence, look at a cell. Now, you ever see the movie Contact? Remember, that, remember um, in Contact, you have this signal that came from space and Jodie Foster detects this signal and... It's a bunch of prime numbers, which he gets excited about for good reason. And then they find that there is this schematic of a spaceship. So you have encoded information, the schematic of the spaceship. She builds a spaceship and then goes through a wormhole. Now, when you see encoded information in space, do you think, wow, I bet that's from a solar flare. I bet that's from a quasar. I bet we could explain that through self-replicating stars that are selected for producing radio waves that look like spaceship schematics. No. When you see evidence of a schematic for a spaceship, you know it's designed. In the same way, when you have the simplest possible cell, which is like an automated city with, with encoded information, it looks designed. That's hard evidence. And I would argue that there's hard historical evidence for the resurrection, which would be part two. Thank you. Uh just to wrap up, you've given an analogy before of your own story about how science has driven you to the door yeah. that you walked through it. Can you elaborate just a little bit more on your story of where those moments happened sure. for you? Sure. What happens is, there's a great quote by Blaise Pascal that said, God has given enough light for those who wish to see and enough darkness for those who aren't inclined to do so. 
God gives evidence in the world of his reality, of his creation. There's evidence in our consciousness, conscience. There's evidence in our sense of morality that there's a creator. There's a sense that we want to have a purpose. We don't want to just be like eventually die and fertilize daffodils. What happens is what Jesus said is those who have more will be given. So people that want truth, people that see light have a choice to turn towards the light and God gives more light. I had a choice. I didn't know if God existed. And I said, God, if you exist, <clears throat> show it to me and I'll follow it. I'll follow you with all of my heart. I'll serve you. And God in, engaged my world through putting me in contact with the right people. I saw miracles. I experienced his presence. So the hard part is not the evidence. The hard part is our will. People that want to know the truth, God will reveal himself. But many people don't want to know the truth. Or I guess as, as, um, as was said in one famous movie, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> so the idea is that God will not force anyone to believe. If a person wants to live in rebellion, God won't prevent them from doing so. We have to make a choice to say, God, if you're real, I will serve you with all of my heart, and then God will reach to our, into our lives and gives us the evidence that we need. Can we thank Dr. Brian for thank his you. time? Yeah, so uh, Dr. Brown will be down here. He loves engaging in debate. I'm sure there'll be a lineup, and feel free to line up and, and, and chat with him. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some dialogue going down down here. Uh, that does conclude our service. We do have coffee and fruit and refreshments in the back. Feel free to hang out or come chat with Dr. Brian. One little announcement is that at 745, in about 25 minutes, there is a meeting for all the parents of youth kids in our church downstairs. Let me just pray as we end us, uh, off our service. Father, um, we, we, we are so grateful uh, for a message like this. It's different. And uh, we're grateful for it. So thank you for the wisdom uh, that you've given Dr. Prime. But I also thank you uh, for his vulnerability and for his ability to uh, hold things in tension and to, and to serve you in the midst of that. So thank you for these, the blessing that he's been to our community over the years. And I pray that he would continue to be that. And would you bless him and his ministry and in the research that, is, that he's doing. And uh, yeah, Father, we're grateful for tonight. And uh, we give you all the glory and honor and praise as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good week, guys.